Today's podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash radiotintinpodcast. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron. Tiers start at just $1 and are on a per episode basis. If I don't make anything, you don't pay anything. All right, enough begging for money. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Do it again! You young ruffian, what are you doing here? Wait, blistering barnacles, I have a present for you. A present? For me? On today's episode, have you ever wanted to be Tintin? This might be as close as we can get. This is Radio Tintin, a brief history of Tintin video games. At the height of the pandemic in 2020, those of us suffering a severe bout of tintinitis were given some exciting news when it was announced that Molensart, the holders of the Tintin license, had partnered with French studio Microids for the creation of a new Tintin video game. Said a Microids spokesperson, This really is a dream come true for us. The adventures of Tintin transported millions of readers worldwide and this opportunity will allow us to put our talents at the service of one of the biggest creators of the 20th century and its inked hero. Our team members are fans of the famous reporter and will do their best to pay this franchise a vibrant homage. We can't wait to kick off this project. Mullins art director Nick Rodwell added, The upcoming PC and console video game inserts itself pretty well into the legacy of the most famous reporter's adventures. Our ambition is to provide a mainstream audience with a fun and friendly game for everyone to enjoy. As of yet, that is all that has come out from either company regarding this project, and many questions remain. Will it be a side-scrolling beat-em-up or an immersive 3D open world? Will it be based on one Tintin adventure, or seek to amalgamate several? Will it be any good? In trying to determine the answers to any of these, it's necessary to look back at Tintin's brief history of video game appearances. Now, of course, most of these games were published years ago and are pretty hard to find, so to better provide information, Radio Tintin has sought out the internet's foremost Tintin video game expert. Uh, can you introduce yourself to those at home? Hello, my name is uh, William. I'm uh, Alex, Alex's brother. And uh, when did you first get into Tintin? Oh, well, I've been, I was into Tintin before Alexander, um, long before, actually. Uh, in my youth, I dabbled in the Tintin comics and uh, collected them all. You did more than dabble. You were like... Oh, I was a big fan. I was a big fan. Yeah. Bought all the comics, you know, been a fan for a while. Yeah, but you sort of grew out of it. I did. I, then, I, I just lost interest in it. Well, I don't... I, and then you took kind of took that, that mantle from me, which is fine. I don't mind, you know, sharing my... Yeah, but you've always quietly resented the fact that now I know more about Tintin than you do. Well, yeah, but I've discovered it first. Okay, all right. Most of the games featured on this list are either developed or published by the French studio Infograms, who held the license to several Franco-Belgian comic properties, including Asterix and Obelisk, Lucky Luke, and Spirou. Incidentally, I'm a little jealous that Asterix fans continue to have so many more games than Tintin loyalists, but it does make it easier to review. Also, this list will only focus on Tintin's home computer and console releases, and not mobile games or apps. With that said, let's plug in. The first game to bear the Tintin license was 1987's Tintin on the Moon, developed by Probe Entertainment and published by Infograms, and released on home computer systems Amiga, Commodore 64, MS-DOS, and 2X Spectrum. 
The different versions are identical in gameplay, though the Amiga boasts considerably superior graphical quality, so we'll be focusing on that. The game is based on 1954's Explorers on the Moon, which is a pretty good story for video game adaption, featuring a variety of hazards Tintin could potentially grapple with. After a vibrant title screen showing the iconic red and white moon rocket taking off, the game drops you straight into the action. Gameplay is divided into two alternating segments. In the first, you control the rocket, rushing through space in the third person, collecting red orbs, which allow you to progress, and yellow orbs, which give you more time, all the while avoiding meteors. It's your standard 3D space shooter, without the shooting. Once you've collected eight red orbs, you transition into a puzzle platformer in which you play as Tintin in the rocket's interior. Inside, you've got to race against the clock to defuse bombs, put out fires, rescue your companions, and apprehend the villainous Colonel Jorgen. There's also an anti-gravity function, which causes all the characters to float, allowing you to obtain out-of-reach items or gain access to higher platforms. Once you've done this, you get another rocket stage. Rinse and repeat a few times, and that's the game. In terms of comic accuracy, it's pretty solid. The game does end with the rocket landing on the moon, whereas in the original story, the conflict with Jorgen occurs after their arrival, but that's a minor quibble. All the characters are clearly represented, and even in the graphically inferior versions, they're not just palette-swapped sprites jumping around the nondescript background. The gameplay is, however, not particularly enthralling by any means, and long plays of the game on YouTube consistently run under 15 minutes for all versions. A sweet, but all too short Tintin fix. Following this, Infograms would develop and publish Tintin in Tibet for all home consoles in 1995. The curious thing about these release dates is they don't seem to coincide with the promotion of any particular piece of Tintin media. There had been no new books, with Urge having passed away at the dawn of the home video game revolution in 1983, and the animated series had ended its run in 1992 without a game adaption. Additionally, Tintin in Tibet must be considered an odd choice for Tintin's first foray into 32-bit gaming. The story is remembered very fondly, but for its prominent theme of friendship, which is hard to convert into gameplay. Following a title screen that admirably replicates the album's iconic cover art, the player is dropped into a prelude mission that has Tintin rescuing his friend Chang. While this is actually a scene from an earlier Tintin story, The Blue Lotus, it's a considerate departure from the source material. Tintin in Tibet revolves around Tintin trying to rescue Chang, so at least players not completely familiar with the albums are given a bit of context. Following this prelude, however, the game follows the original story closely. Very closely too closely? As stated, Tintin in Tibet isn't action-packed in a traditional sense. The only antagonist is a ferocious but misunderstood yeti that only appears at the very end of the story. There aren't any gangsters or spies for Tintin to punch, so the game resorts to having you dodge waiters and suitcases in a hotel lobby. The dangers feel much less contrived once Tintin actually makes it to the Tibetan stages of the game and must grapple, quite literally, with various environmental hazards. While mostly a side-scrolling platformer, the game doesn't shy away from changing up the gameplay, including segments of Tintin swinging, climbing, and once you make it to the stages based on the Tibetan monastery, solving puzzles, though like the hotel guests, the Tibetan monks will take away your life if they collide with you, which seems antithetical to what little I know about Buddhism. Once again, the developers needed something to pose a danger in these less dangerous settings from the album. The no-damage long plays on YouTube make weaving through hazards look like a breeze, but 
It's not. There's no attack either. Tintin just ducks and dodges through a world that is apparently determined to destroy him. I know the feeling. At least the world is wonderful to look at. Every setting is recognisable from the album and the game's side-scrolling layout does make it feel remarkably like an Urge album come to life. To even have Tintin's outfit change at the same point it does in the story is an indictment of the reverence Infogrames had for the source material. Even the menu and password screens are made to aesthetically match the monastery setting of the game. While Tintin in Tibet may not have been the ideal story to adapt, it's at least appreciated that the developers committed to it so heavily. The game even reaches some pretty tense heights in the final level, which sees Tintin platforming through caves haunted by the menacing shadow of the Unseen Yeti. Infogrames followed this template closely when they released Prisoners of the Sun for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System in 1997, which adapts both the Tintin album of the same name and the preceding adventure, The Seven Crystal Balls. This two-parter was undeniably better suited to game adaption. There's a variety of action scenes, and by focusing on two albums instead of one, the developers are able to provide more variety in the level settings. The player is, however, still forced to endure an opening level of Tintin dodging museum goers. Apparently, the intrepid reporter that took down Al Capone's criminal empire can be mortally wounded by civilians brushing past him at a slightly increased pace. Like its predecessor, Prisoners of the Sun isn't afraid to deviate from its side-scrolling core and actually includes some gameplay elements not present in Tintin in Tibet. Some levels have Tintin balancing in a runaway train carriage. Others have him moving towards the screen to avoid gunfire or avalanches. Even some stealth elements thrown in, such as the particularly atmospheric segment that features Tintin sneaking aboard an enemy ship to a smooth jazz soundtrack. By moving away from combat, the core of the level progression comes in the form of puzzle solving, perhaps adhering to the spirit of mystery and adventure rather than straight up action in the comic series. However, the game doesn't always telegraph what's expected from you to progress, meaning the player will be moving back and forth across the same settings, trying to find the right item to give to the right person at the right time, all the while trying to memorize which of the innocuous things on the screen will take away one of their scanned pieces of health upon impact. The game ends without a climactic final level on par with Tintin in Tibet, but it would perhaps be unreasonable to expect the developers to shoehorn an original scene where Tintin punches out the Incan chief. Once again, everything from the menus to Tintin's story-accurate outfit changes are a testament to Infogram's reverence for Urge's work. Infogrames would retain the license into the next era of home consoles, publishing Tintin Destination Adventure for the original PlayStation in 2001, though it was developed by British studio RuneCraft and designed by Mullins Art Multimedia. The exact differentiation between these roles is beyond my capacity as a humble Tintin podcaster. Destination Adventure would mark a break from the previous titles in a number of ways. While it retains the side-scrolling core, the gameplay is conducted in what is sometimes called 2.5D, meaning the characters are rendered 3D models that only move in two dimensions. This would mark the first time Tintin had been animated in 3D. The results are perfectly acceptable, though some purists will scoff at the idea of Urge's work existing on anything but a flat plane. Additionally, rather than being based on a single storyline, Destination Adventure explores the events of five separate stories. The Black Island, Red Rackham's Treasure, Land of Black Gold, Explorers on the Moon, 
and Flight 714 to Sydney. This is conducted in quite a clever way. The opening scene depicts Tintin and his friends gathering in Marlin Spike Hall to view Professor Calculus's Super Calcacolor television set, a premise taken directly from the scene in the Castafiore Emerald. The player then uses the television screen to select which of Tintin's adventures to revisit, and upon selecting, is provided with some brief context from Tintin and Haddock. What's this? Calculus's submarine? Yes. Thanks to Professor Calculus's submarine, we found the wreck of the unicorn. My ancestor, Sir Francis Haddock's ship. It brings tears to my eyes. For dedicated Tintin fans, this is a fantastic decision, enabling them to jump straight into the scenes of their favourite stories. For casual fans though, or for players who may have not even been familiar with the series, it might be a little strange to play through these unconnected vignettes with so little explanation. Gameplay for each adventure is divided into side-scrolling, a third-person driving mission, and, with the exception of Red Rackham's treasure, a boss battle. The driving missions are specific to the story, giving the player a chance to pilot some of the iconic vehicles from the series. Professor Calculus's Shark Submarine, the Moon Rover, even the Caritas 160 supersonic jet. That last one does raise some questions, as it would seem to be requiring the player to take the role of the hijackers who actually kidnapped Tintin in Flight 714 to Sydney, but just go along with it and enjoy piloting one of the vehicles meticulously designed by Roger Laloop, who was, in the words of Michael Farr, the aeronautical expert of Studio Urge. The boss stages all involve Tintin moving back and forth along a circular plane waiting to strike at the villain in the middle of the circle. Ranko the Gorilla for the Black Island, Dr. Mueller for the Land of Black Gold, Colonel Jorgen for Explorers on the Moon, and Rustapopolis for Flight 714 to Sydney. The basic premise is the same for each, but each battle is unique and draws on details from the respective adventures on which they're based. For example, the player must wait for Dr. Mueller to succumb to the sneezing power featured in Land of Black Gold before striking. Once more, the multi-adventure basis of the game gives a dedicated Tintin fan the chance to do battle with some of the series' most iconic baddies, and also Ranko, who is actually a very good boy. Ranko? Nah, he's harmless. Ultimately, it's the side-scrolling segments that once again take up the bulk of the game. This time, Tintin can punch and is given a camera weapon to temporarily blind enemies, as well as bottles of chloroform that he can throw to incapacitate him. These items are great touches and much more in keeping with the spirit of the comics than if they let Tintin pick up guns to go around blowing the heads off his enemies. Except once more, combat is hardly a focus of the game, so you'll hardly encounter enough enemies to use them on. As a result, there are stretches of landscape that, while very evocative of the source material, are largely void of any real obstacles or challenges. The developers compensate for this by adding tokens the player can collect, which take the form of discs with the Snowy's happy face on them. This, regrettably, breaks some of the immersion for a game that otherwise tries so hard to stay faithful to its source material. Tintin's outfit once more changes to correspond with Urge's story, but they couldn't think of a story-specific collectible for each level? Furthermore, 150 tokens for each level is simply far too many, and as a result, they are just splashed around to be soaked up by the player simply moving to the level's end. Having just 10 of them in out-of-reach places would be a better way to encourage exploration in the level. Collecting 150 in every level does unlock a bonus stage at the end of each story's adventure, allowing the player to control Snowy as he digs and jumps to collect bones. A simple but suitable bonus. Another drawback is the soundtrack. 
The songs are fine, but they're so short and they don't loop well at all, meaning the noise will noticeably cease and then just start up again. It's a minor quibble, but it's one that has the potential to drive players crazy. Destination Adventure would be the final Tintin game developed by Infograms, and an appropriate send-off for a studio that clearly loved the stories they were working to adapt. For the average gamer, there really isn't much cause to revisit them. But if you're a Tintin fan looking for a game made by people who are clearly Tintin fans, I recommend finding a copy of Destination Adventure. Or if you prefer to actually have money for food and rent, just watch a long play on YouTube. It would be another 10 years before Tintin Games returned to home consoles, this time to coincide with Steven Spielberg's big screen adaption, The Adventures of Tintin, The Secret of the Unicorn, developed and published by Ubisoft on all consoles. While this nominally follows the plot of the film, there are some pretty major changes along the way, such as making the Bird Brothers the antagonists rather than Mr. Saccharin, which actually reflects Urge's story better than the film adaption does. The Black Island from the Tintin adventure of the same name is also shoehorned into the plot, which will make some purists upset, but shows the developers were at least looking beyond the film for inspiration. Gameplay is divided between side-scrolling platforming, third-person roaming sections, and third-person driving sections, but also includes interactive elements that attempt to immerse the player into the story progression, such as having them turn the pages of books or navigate along maps with the controller. Unlike in Destination Adventure, the side-scrolling elements revolve around puzzle solving, featuring Tintin trying to put the objects in the right spot so he can disable enemies, hit switches, or clear blockages. It does encourage the player to stop and think more than Destination Adventure does, and gives them a chance to be more immersed in the level's design, which is nicely evocative of the beautifully shot film. This puzzle platforming also provides the basis of the game's multiplayer co-op mode, which requires the player and their friend to work together to move through a fantastic dreamscape under the pretense of acting out the captain's drunken delusions. It's a good addition that provides considerable replay value based on the best element of the single player game. They've announced a, tintin, a tin, new Tintin game. Have they? Yeah, again, they've, they've announced the partnership. I don't think development's even started on it. Um, so we've got no details. What would you like to see? In a new Tintin game? Yeah. Um, I would like to see a... Now, hear me out. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see a GTA-style mm -hmm. um, game yep. where you're in a hub mm -hmm. and you can visit each of the Tintin stories. I'd say either stick to a few small stories mm -hmm. and make them really, like, like large. Like um, Destination Adventure? but Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, obviously flesh it out a bit more. But like, have that view, that over that that view from like GTA, where you're controlling Tintin from behind, mm. and you, he's moving through all kind like the three D environment. That'd be great. I yeah, think, I think the side scrolling segment, the side scrolling platforming is nice, but I think it's been done to death. I'd like to see a different kind of approach to it. Yeah, I wonder if you know if maybe the temptation is because because Tintin is presented primarily in you know the movie aside. This won't be based on the movie. This will be based on the. The comics. Is it? Predom well, predom well, it's not going to be based on the film. Because That's it's, true, it's not one out. Um, so maybe the temptation is because the comic set out, it almost looks like a side scroll because it's like a flat ah, page. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, that, that could be it. But I, I, I do like the idea of having that, that 3D version. But again, the problem is, unless you're going to do an original adventure, 
which I cannot imagine them ever signing off on anybody ever doing no, it. No, no, no. The problem is, if you're not, they're not going to do that, then again, how do you adapt all these... Within one story, there's so many different locations. So how do you adapt all these different locations into one sort of 3D world is, is the challenge. When, yeah. I, when I talk about the GT, I don't mean this... I mean, you know, the hub world can be kind of free roam where you're in like the city. You mean third-person action adventure? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty much what I'm talking about. And there's a hub world where you can unlock, where you can see all your like your, you can go to all your, you can go to all your locations and has all these extras that like you know, uh, yeah, harken back to the comic books and stuff like that. There should be heaps of unlockables in the game that like uh, you know it's good for Tintin fans, stuff like that, stuff that you find that like means something that has some relevance to the actual books. Possibility to play as different characters. Yes, yes, uh, but of course, who would you play as? Plays Captain Haddock, obviously. Um, well, you don't see much of Calculus in combat, do you? No, nor... Um, oh, you can play as Thompson and Thompson. That'd be good. Yeah. And then probably Snowy. Probably Lady Castafuro. Oh, and yeah. she just sings. <laughs> just sings, <yeah. laughs> Just repeatedly. <laughs> well, there's no word of when Microid's new Tintin game will be released. It will provide some much-needed new content for fans of the comics. For better or worse, Mullen's art is very protective of Tintin's image, which may well mean they will refuse to sign off on anything but a high-quality video game. We can only hope. In the meantime, I hope this episode has given you an idea of which of Tintin's previous games you might like to revisit. I will be resuming my Tintin reviews in 2022, and we have lots of classic stories to explore, all of which is made possible by my generous patrons at patreon.com slash Radio Tintin Podcast. If you haven't considered supporting me on Patreon, please do so. It helps keep the lights on. Otherwise, you can review the show on Apple Podcasts, which helps people find the show, and follow me on Instagram at tintin.podcast or facebook.com slash Radio Tintin Podcast, where you can enjoy some daily Tintin content. That is all for the plugs. I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas and a safe New Year's, and I look forward to engaging with you all in 2022. In the meantime, Tintin Heads, this has been Radio Tintin. Thank you for tuning in.